This episode is brought to you in part by Wholehearted Love, a new book by Caleb and Stephanie Rouse. Overcome the barriers that hold you back in your relationships with God and with others and delight in feeling safe, seen, and loved with Wholehearted Love. For more information, go to Tyndale.com. Welcome to The Cartographers, where we map the changing cultural landscape for 21st century Christian leaders. Expect thoughtful conversations with hosts Bryce and Ashley Hales and their guests to help you navigate a changing cultural landscape. Listen in. Chris, Bruno, it's great to talk with you again. Thanks so much for joining us today. Hey, thanks so much for having me, you guys. Great to be with you. Yeah. So, Chris, a lot of your work as a counselor and in other ministries that you've uh, you started or been involved with, a lot of your work is concerned with men and what it means to be a man. And so uh, in your new book, you say that we tend to think of the main seasons of a man's life in kind of three phases. So you talk about boyhood, manhood, and then old age. But you are wanting us to think about that middle manhood section as two kind of distinct passages. And so you say that in the first passage of a man's life, which is, you know, 18 to maybe 35 or 40, it's often about you know, finding a career, uh, getting married, having kids, developing proficiency, excellence in your work, taking on increasing responsibility, but then there's this transition into the second passage that needs to happen. So tell us some more about that. Yeah. So I think, I don't know where we got this idea that when you're an adult, you're just an adult, right? That you become an adult and that is what you are for the rest of your life. And I, yeah, I, I'm not quite so convinced that that's the case because I think we become adults far later than we actually think we become adults. <laughs> And there is something about the journey of establishing yourself, just like you said, Bryce, of you're developing a career, a family, an identity, a sense of, you know, why are you on this earth and, and all those things. And far too many people just carry on with that idea well into their kind of late 30s, 40s, 50s. And we miss, I think, what is another really important stage of our lives which is that transition out of whether you're a, you know, a man, a woman, a king or a queen out of those stages into something else that I call sage. And that is that older, wiser, more settled. Uh, you're not trying to prove anything anymore. You're not trying to you know, conquer any more mountains. It, it doesn't mean that you're like disengaged from the world, but it is, it is uh, that establishment phase of your life is, is moving into a more settled phase of your life. And if we don't attend to that, it won't happen. If we don't intend for that to happen, it doesn't happen. Uh, so that's what I'm trying to write about here in the book. Yeah. So maybe, um, what, what does happen if we don't intentionally make that transition? <laughs> oh, 
Uh, yeah, that's a great question. Well, uh, actually, let's let's not go there. To, like, to, to, let's let's do the positive side. Uh, what like <laughs> what what do you hope to see? What what does that transition need to look like? Yeah, or what does it look like ideally? The the transition I think is it comes back to my first word that I just said a moment ago is more settledness. That the um, kind of the energy of building and growing and being. Uh, calms down a little bit. And and now because we can settle and there's a level of contentment that settles in, there's a level of generosity of both spaciousness of our hospitality with others, both literally in our homes and also around us and in us that grows. There is a, a general sense of spirituality that can grow in that. That settledness brings us to a place of being what, you know, in, in the scriptures, it talks about the the elders of the community. And I, and I want to make a distinction between an elder of the community and the elderly <laughs> elders. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Elders are those people who are kind of the guardrails, the pylons of society and the elderly are those people who have just gotten older and not attended to those things. So when we do this, when we step into becoming an elder, the whole world begins to take a deep breath. The world around us is able to go, ah, like there are good, solid men and women in the world. And as I'm in my frenetic building stage, I can look to them as this is actually the direction, the, the place I want to land. I, I love that distinction between elder and elderly, because as you know, I'm a pastor. And so I'm all, I'm thinking about, you know, how, how are we training elders? But, but the word in some ways is more descriptive. Like the, the Bible talks about, like, these are the characteristics of people who are elders much more than this is how we, we tend to think of it. Like this is how to become an elder, but the word elder almost implies just like, well, you're, you're older than other people now. <laughs> <laughs> well, I do think you're right. Like where we have come in the church is that we've used the word elder to describe a role more than it describes a person. And where I'm trying to bring the language back to is it's describing a person and those characteristics of that person. And you know, you can, I'm sure you guys have met and, you know, listeners have probably met somebody that you would go, that person is an old soul, meaning that they, they have some of the characteristics of someone who has lived a lot, who has, like I just said a little while ago, settled in some ways, but they don't necessarily have to be 70, 80, 90 years old. They, they can be 40, 50, you know, sometimes even 30, you know, but they have the gravitas of person in them. That then, like I said earlier, everyone around them just takes a deep breath because they know that good, solid, wise person is around. Um, so I'd love to kind of separate those two. There is the elder role and then there is the elder person. And ideally, they're overlapping. Ideally, there is a sense of they're the same thing. And uh, you can be an elder person without being an elder role, but you can't be an elder role without being an elder person. Yes. Amen. <laughs> um, so as we talk about this whole idea of Sage, you know, your book is called Sage. You talk about Gandalf and Dumbledore. Would you just unpack this idea about the role of the Sage? You've, you've kind of given us this imaginative picture already where we, 
there's this settledness. Um, but what really helps men to become sages? So many things. I, to unpack even the word sage, you mentioned a couple sages that are in you know popular movies and stuff, uh, Dumbledore and, and Gandalf, and and I would you know the the number of them is so many, and they're all throughout our literature, they're all throughout our history, they're all throughout church history, they're all throughout the scriptures. These are the people that are the wise counselors that stand behind the main actor, the main character. Okay. And that is, that is what I'm trying to get at with the sage is that there is a, there is a vettedness, there is an experience base, there is a wisdom that that person brings and supports with their hand on the back of the main hero, uh, the, the, the narrative that is unfolding and that hero cannot be that hero without the sage standing behind them. So what does a man do to become that? Well, I feel like there's, uh, we could talk for, you know, a couple of hours on that question. Um, I think the first thing I would say is he first has to intend to become a sage. Becoming a sage doesn't happen by accident. It is an intentional journey that he needs to have his sights set on and say, hey, I want to become that type of person. I want to become that type of man. And uh, you know, my book is written mostly uh, with the audience of men, but I want to, you know, talk about it in the sense of both men and women are called, I believe, to become sages in uh, in really the fullness of who we were designed to be. So uh, the first thing I would say is intention. Uh, and then the second thing is to be willing to do some internal work with the uh, the parts of you that have been left uh unattended, uh, traumas that you have experienced that have been unhealed, uh, broken off parts of you that you have forgotten, uh, anything that feels a little disjointed or dis disintegrated inside of you, that's the work of what a sage needs to do in order to attend to those places, which is why we could talk for hours about what I actually mean by that. Right, right. What what does it look like? How do you do it? You know, and, and we think about too, the, the reality, right, that not all men become sages or, right, not all people become elders, even if they grow elderly. Um, and there's a lot in our culture, right, that that leads older men particularly to view retirement, let's say, as a chance to kind of check out or to enjoy the fruit of their labors um, and to disconnect from clear mission in life. What, what have you noticed, you know, as you've written the book and as you've counseled men what is the thing maybe that that shifts instead of thinking maybe about that second half of life as a way to check out uh, to actually then be compelled to be that strong, settled presence at the back of the main hero? That's a great question. And you said something to enjoy the fruit of their labors. And so I am a I'm a big fan of people enjoying the fruit of their labors. They have worked hard. They have set aside money. They have done the the thing, whatever their thing is. And there, I do believe that there is a season where we can kind of close down some of those things. And we do need to step out of the active role of leadership and being that queen or that king so that others can step into that. So it's not a matter of not having retirement or not enjoying yourself. However, I do think that combined with that, and I love how you just said, Ashley, that where they check out and that is all that they're doing. I think that is where we lose so many people to 
the enjoyment now becomes their primary task, their primary focus. And I think we lose when people do that. We lose wisdom, presence, settledness, containment, uh, guidance, those kinds of things that that only a wiser, older person can bring uh, to our younger generation. And I know in my life, like I have needed those sages to be with me in the moments where I am walking through some really challenging things. Very few of those times is I'm asking them for advice. Most of those times I am asking merely for their presence to be with me and to reassure me that all will be well. That's what I think the biggest thing a sage man or woman brings into the conversation is their presence and kind of this reminder that God is who he says he is. I have lived through seasons similar to this. I am not done and I see where you are and I see you in the midst of where you are and all will be well. So if all we're doing is golfing, if all we're doing is, you know, off, you know, cruising around the Mediterranean, again, I'm not against those things per se, but if that's all that we're focused on, I feel like uh, we have a very anemic society that uh, we need to come back to. And that's kind of my call. Come back. I I love, Chris, how you talk about intention. I mean, it's kind of... um... It's become my like uh, my favorite word in the last couple of years. Uh, I, I, yeah, yes, Dallas Willard talks about um, vision, intention, methodology. Right, where are we going? How do we get there? But we so often skip that intention part of like, do we actually want to do the things that are associated with you know becoming a sage <laughs> in this case? Um, so I, I, I guess I'm curious. Do you do you are you writing the book here? Um, like, do you, do you have the, 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 um, the potential sage who's like, um, the, the reached that point in their life that we're just talking about and isn't stepping into that role or is this more of like a, so I'm 42, I'm, I'm like at the beginning of that yeah. <laughs> process that you're talking about. Uh, is it, is it written for somebody in, at my stage of life to say, actually, here's, here's what the vision needs to look like. As a 16-year-old. Or, or is that a false dichotomy? <laughs> yeah, Bryce, great question. As a 16-year-old, I was first introduced to, uh, to a sage. And it was from that moment on that uh, God really impressed onto me having a vision of becoming that sage. Now, I was 16, 18, 20, 25, 35, 45. Like, I've gone through all of those seasons. And even as I... You know, I'm just a little bit further along the journey. I'm ter- just about to turn 50. I'm still at the front end of that actually happening in my life. And I think what I'm trying to get at is can we not all of us, whether we are 16 or 96, have a vision, have an intention, and have a methodology, as you just said, to becoming that sage? Now, the, the realization of that vision and intention uh, is is not going to happen until you have you know, some age and some experience and some battles that you've won and some battles that you've lost. Right. But at the end of that is like, who am I actually becoming on the road to where I'm going? And I don't think, you know, as a, 
I'm not saying that this book is written for a 16 year old, but I would say like, uh, you know, somebody in their late twenties, early thirties, if they were to pick this up and go, Hey, this is, this is at least where I want to be heading. That I think would be great. And if you're 96, we still need you. And it's never too late to step into these things Mm. either. Yeah, that's really great. So let me ask a couple of kind of like, okay, what about? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So, you know, something definitely begins to change at 40. And, um, you know, you talk about the second passage. And and one of the things that struck me as I was reading your book is that you kind of talk about it like the first passage was successful but unfulfilling. And I'm imagining that there are probably a lot of men who feel that change at 40, but also look back and don't feel like the first passage was terribly successful. You know, you uh, tried to start a business that didn't take off or you got to a certain point where like the, the, the dream career or whatever didn't really pan out. Uh, how do you think that affects the, the transition into the second passage? So I'd like to play with your word success a little bit, Bryce, because um, I think we land on success as it worked. And I want to bring the word success into like, who, who have I been? Have I been moving in a direction towards maturity as I have navigated those highs and those lows? And, you know, I think what we get to at the age of 40 and it, you know, again, that's just the general term, midlife, 40, over the hill, whatever you want to call it. Something does happen in that season where it's like, oh, the things that I have relied upon so far in the past haven't been sufficient for the maturity that I am hoping for. And so now I need to do something different. Maybe the survival skills that I've had thus far are not serving me. Maybe they're, you know, my, the way I'm surviving is actually hurting someone else, my wife, my kids. Uh, it's so it's not a matter of success in, I have a successful family and I have a successful business or a successful ministry. It's more in the sense of like, where, where have I come and am I on the road to maturity? And if not, then it needs a level of intending. And if you, if it is, then it's not going to take you much further either. So something has to shift in that middle, middle range, middle life period of life. Yeah. That's, thank you for that. (laughs) That that gives me a lot more hope. Um, So the the other question I'm just wondering about, like, what does this look like for men? I mean, you you talk about, you mentioned this now, you talk in the book about meeting a sage at 16. A, A lot of men that I interact with, feel like they've never had that father figure, that sage in their lives. And, and so in some ways I feel like, you know, personally, I'm a 42 year old pastor and I feel like I'm trying to play a role in the lives of other men, some of whom are actually significantly older than I am. Um, and, and yet I've never had maybe that role played in my life. I mean, how, how, how does that, how does that work? As a 16-year-old, the sage that I met was a fictional character in a book. And the way that the author wrote the character was so uh, envisioning to the man that I wanted to be that I began to really uh, imagine and identify with that fictional character. Now, 
a couple of years later, I did meet a couple of, uh, of sages and in my life as a, you know, 16, 18 year old, they were, you know, 30 or, you know, whatever, just a few years ahead of me. But Bryce, my thought is, however, we, if we do not have actual sages that we can look to actual people, uh, that we can spend time with and experience their presence. I think that that is, is, is why we have a couple millennia of literature stored up for us in the scriptures to go, Hey, here was a man who, I mean, in, in Hebrews 11 has, has a list of sages that we can, even if we can't ever meet them, begin to identify with, begin to say, Hey, what did they do? How did they live? What was the way, what were their, their, you know, back to our earlier conversation, successes and failures. How can I begin to model myself after them? So, uh, most people I'm afraid don't have great stories of great sages in their lives. And I think we have some really good examples and, and whether they are in fiction literature, like it was for me or in scriptural literature, you know, it is, we have access to some at least. That's helpful. Thanks for restoring hope. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, cause we, yeah, we haven't modeled maybe imaginatively if we don't have it modeled, you know, actually. So that's a helpful, helpful starting point. I wonder if you can help us think about what is happening culturally. Um, obviously we have a bunch of female listeners as well. Um, you know, but it seems like culturally there are several narratives playing out right now. One, we get like kind of this crisis of masculinity that we've heard of and read about. Um, David Brooks wrote, you know, his book, The Second Mountain, and he recently published a piece called The Crisis of Men and Boys. Um, and then there's another kind of narrative that we've heard a lot about, uh, often on social media, about toxic masculinity. And it's often about abuse of power um, and that men have mostly been in positions of power and authority for a long time. And maybe it's a really great thing that these things are changing. So given these two narratives, how do we think about the role of the sage um, in that sort of settled, non-anxious presence, um, you know, that you're speaking about, given these are the kind of the cultural conversations about men? Yeah, I love that you bring that, Ashley, because I think it's, it is a crisis of masculinity. I think it's a crisis of femininity. I think it's a crisis for all of us. And so the way that I would like to maybe answer that question is that um, I think we've gotten to the place that we are in because we have not tended to or attended to becoming these kinds of sages, both men and women. I feel like, you know, scripturally, they, they are the pylons of society. They are the, the, the ones who sit at the city gates. They are the ones that kind of hold the guardrails of, of who we are, both individually and communally. And so to, to think about where we've gone off the rails, uh, I think, you know, you're naming some of the places that we have gone off the rails. So in, in the book, I talk about this. There was this amazing study that was done on African elephants. And the, uh, the, I don't forget what kind of ologists they are, zoologists, I think maybe, uh, right? There's one of those ologists. They were doing this study and uh, there was a, a large population of elephants that were terrorizing each other, other animals, and the villages around them. 
And as they began to look at the population of elephants, they realized that there were no older male elephants in the herd because they had all been poached for their ivory. And so now we have a very, very young uh, population of elephants without the older kind of general of, of, the, of the herd. So what they did was they brought in other older male elephants into the herd and kind of reintroduced uh, them. And what the older males did was they did not fight. They did not correct. They did not, as the younger males got off, you know, off the rails or whatever, they did not, you know, push their way in or overpower them. What they did, just their presence brought a sense of settledness and containment to the herd uh, and the violence you know, slowed down and the level of, uh, you know, craziness amongst the, the younger elephants, uh, just kind of, you know, all but disappeared. That I think is what we're seeing in toxic masculinity is that what has become is to be masculine is to be powerful, to be masculine is to overpower. Uh, it's about muscles. It's about, uh, the, uh, the kind of the booming presence of a man. And that's not actually what we see is, is really the call of, uh, of what it means to be a man. And I'll, I'll come back to Psalm 62, where it talks about you, O God, are a God of strength and you, O God, are a God of tenderness that within him, he is both and uh, I think we've lost the connection between those two. Uh, and, uh, and I think both men and women are strong and tender. And when we've diverted those two things, we've separated those two things is where we get into toxic whatever. This episode is brought to you in part by Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries, which prepares Christian women for leadership. At Bow, we believe that every woman is a leader because she influences someone. So, whom do you influence? Do you mentor a woman, serve in the workplace, or do you lead a small group, teach the Bible, or even lead an entire ministry? No matter who or how many you influence, our free online resources will help equip you. Our videos, podcast episodes, and articles from experienced women leaders will encourage you and perfect your leadership skills. They offer wisdom for dealing with ministry pitfalls, current biblical issues, health for your own soul, and insights for shepherding others well. In addition, BOW offers Bible studies designed to connect women of multiple generations. They provide a challenge to both women new to the Bible and those wanting to dig deeper. Be our guest and browse all of our free resources and low-cost Bible studies at beyondordinarywomen.org. It, it, it seems like some of the cultural kind of response to this whole toxic masculinity thing has been to try to minimize the differences between men and women and, and sort of like paper over and say, actually, we're all fundamentally the same and and – and, and so the way we're going to fix this problem is by taking out any particularity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so and almost um, 
I don't know if I want to say this, but, but, you know, even the phrase toxic masculinity, like it, it's obviously a very real thing. And yet it, that phrase can also be used to kind of sort of shame men and say, okay, you need to just kind of sit down because by standing up, you're asserting power and privilege over people. And we all know that we're all just the same here. And it sounds like what you're saying is we need to have a, a much more robust understanding of, of both femininity and masculinity. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And the, the thing is that I hear you saying, Bryce, is that so toxic masculinity is telling all men to sit down, but then, but then the backlash to that is the abdication is also a problem. And so there's, where do we then, or do we half sit? Do we not? Do we, you know, (laughs) and same thing for women. I'm seeing the same thing on, on both sides of the equation. So I just wonder if we can be brought back to uh, an invitation to wonder, an invitation to, just like you said, Ashley, the, the, where are the particularities and where is the beauty in those particularities rather than where are the problems in those particularities that we as humans have gone, as, as I said, off the rails with. Um, so toxic masculinity is actually a thing. And so is toxic femininity. And so is, you know, an abdication of all of those things, right? So I, I don't have an answer of where we should land other than into a place of wonder and a place of curiosity and a place of like, who are we as unique humans made in the image of God as a man or as a woman? And what would, what would God invite us to there? I love that elephant story. And I really appreciate, I love that reading it in the book. And it strikes me, you know, as we talk about it right now, the ways in which like social media, for instance, um, or the, you know, the fact that we are all often, you know, online and constantly distracted. It's kind of like we're all those, those bucking Bronco types of elephants, right? Like we're like, we have nothing to rein us in. Um, and, and we can vent, you know, our crazy thoughts and opinions that have not been tested or approved or settled, you know, online. And maybe our social media spaces is that, that crazy herd of herd of elephants. But given that that's our reality, um, what hope do you have for, those sages to actually provide guardrails, uh, in, in, in those spaces. Yeah. I, what I see a lot of older people do is think that the only thing that they have to offer is their advice and their, and their information. And that's, I I don't know a sage I've ever asked actually for advice (laughs) and unsolicited advice. I think we all know is just like, whatever. Right. That's right. my phrase is like, that's why we have YouTube these days is to get the advice that we need in order to, to figure out whatever. And we pay experts to give us advice. We don't need to have sages give us advice. There's a couple uh, kind of characters that I have in my mind. And if, if you guys, if listeners have seen the movie, the shack uh, there is the, the God figure in the shack who is this wonderfully beautiful sage in how um, she welcomes the um, the other character into the home and just makes him a meal and feeds him and tends to him and cares for him and listens to him and and those kinds of things and uh, you know in a much older movie uh, the original matrix there is a, another older 
beautiful woman who is offering him the kind of, she's called the Oracle in the movie. There's something, she brings that kind of, I'm just going to make you cookies and we're going to sit together and we're going to talk. So I say those two things because I don't want someone to have in their mind that to be a sage is to know all the things, go all the places, have all the experience, have all the answers that to be a sage actually is as simple as inviting someone in to a conversation with a chocolate chip cookie and just being present and listening like that. So I don't want to overcomplicate what a sage is, but even to get to the point where you can do that requires a level. It requires more than a chocolate chip cookie recipe. It requires a level. of (laughs) I don't need to be the biggest person in the room. I don't need to have answers. I don't need to, uh, to make sure that you like me. Like those things need, that's what I mean by the settledness of the sage is, okay, we can just be together and my focus can be fully on you as you're, you know, you younger person, you, you are unpacking what's happening to you and for you. And I'm just here. Yeah. So you don't identify a sage by their name tag is what you're saying? (laughs) No. (laughs) And in fact, I feel like those that do identify like, Hey, I'm a sage. Uh, we need to, we need to wonder about that. So, <laughs> but if you do have a good chocolate chip yeah. cookie recipe, always Chris, helpful, you can let us always know. helpful. Yeah. 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 Well, Chris, as we wrap up, let me, let me just kind of, and you kind of hinted that's at this already, but let me just kind of ask the, like the, so what question I can imagine a lot of men reading your book and it, it really resonates or, or women reading your book and wanting a lot of what you're describing for their husbands. I mean, where, where does somebody start here? Um, and, and I mean, that's an individual question, but I'm also kind of curious about like, what do you, how do you see this playing out in the life of a, of a community, um, maybe a, a church community? Like, how do we how do we get started? Well, I'd love for people to grab the book, obviously. And um, what has started to happen, Bryce, is that some groups of guys that have gone through other material have said, okay, this has helped us be a man in our marriage, in our community, in in whatever sense. And there's a lot of great books out there that do that. Uh, There is something about who are we going to become and how can we do that together? So when you say as a community, I love that because I think we're actually better men. We're made better men by other men. And if we're going to engage this kind of journey for me, it is it is both an individual journey that I have to do this for myself and, and for my own life and for my own story. But we do this together is going to make it all the more this, uh, this sense of like, wow, something is communally maturing around us. Uh, and so I think to start would be uh, to, to kind of gather a group of guys who have a hunger for something new, different, or other and begin to read and talk about what's next for us. As our kids get older, as our careers change and shift, as uh, our marriages enter into the, you know, that first and second decade of existence, like who are we becoming? Uh, I think those conversations are going to be far more valuable than really anything I have to say in the book. <laughs> so um, <laughs> that's, I think, where we start. 
Yeah. But I also think that that your your writing gives guys a a, a context, right? To um to to have something to discuss so that it's not just a um I mean, I think it's actually in your in your other book or the the Brotherhood Primer where you talk about like the phenomenon of men just gathering around the barbecue and talking about the game. And there, there does need to be something to get the ball rolling, I think, with a group of men a lot of the time. Yeah. And that's where I hope that it is a Kickstarter to that. You know, it is a catalyst to those deeper conversations. And, and you know, we tried to put some questions at the end of every chapter, uh, which are designed for you to personally ponder or for you to discuss together in a group. Um, so uh, that is my hope to kickstart these things and to, uh, and even if only one guy in the group is reading it and is bringing some of those questions to the rest of the group, like that actually begins to change the tenor of the gathering. Chris, I'd love to hear just, you know, as we're wrapping up, what have been, you know, as you've been, can I use saged as saged as a verb? <laughs> I mean, but sure. saged by um, men and by, by imaginative, you know, figures as, as you've read. Um, what do you feel like for you personally has been some of the, some of those touchstones on that journey of that second, um, that second passage? And I just asked this, you know, thinking about our listeners going, oh gosh, I, I, you know, I feel some of the rumblings, you know, in midlife perhaps. Um, so what might you say, you know, going forward, what would be, you know, the trail markers uh, that we could be looking forward to, to realize, okay, here's a point to, to practice some of these intentions that we've talked about. I, so for me personally, it really began several years ago when some friends and I took a, took a trip celebrating one of our, you know, a 40th birthday. And it was during that time that some of the conversations came up that were like, Hey, who are we? What do we have? You know, where have we been and where are we going? And, um, so I feel like, uh, to answer your question with some, some mile markers is first is, uh, do you feel some of those tremors happening in your life where you're like, Hey, this is, it, it's been good. It's been bad. Whatever your judgment against it is, it is not enough. Uh, and I'm not saying not enough, like it's, it's insufficient, but it is not the fullness of all of what God has for me. Cause I feel like there's a, um, a reticence to say where we started the conversation of like that, you know, we don't, we're not adults our entire life. There's more for us. So I want to offer that hope. And, and for me, the first place was, uh, is there more? And when I learned that, yes, there is, that was a place of, okay, therefore, what now do I do? Um, the second marker I would say is, uh, where, and, and I don't want to, I want to stay away from the word crisis because I don't know that it necessarily always has to be like a rock bottom crisis, but there is some, there is some, uh, kind of earthquake that begins to happen that inside that you're re you recognize like, oh, uh, this is, um, this is not where I'm going to land for the rest of my life. My season is shifting. My, uh, my marriage is shifting. Something else is required of me and I need to need to move into that. So that'd be a second marker. And then I would say a third is that there is an invitation to, uh, to some of those younger parts of you, to some of those younger spaces inside of you. My, my tagline for, for the book is kind of if the, um, 
if the task of the first passage in a man's life is to find the man within the boy and call him forth, right, in that first rite of passage, the task of the second passage is to find the boy within the man and bring him home. So how can we as people go, what, what parts of me are orphaned? What parts of me are exiled? What parts of me uh, have I left behind? What parts of me do I find disgusting? What parts of my story, like any of those kinds of, what parts of me do I hate? If I can begin to identify what some of those are and bring bring those parts back, reintegrate those parts back into myself, that that willingness to do that work is actually one of the markers of you're you're on the right road. You're you're heading in the right direction. So good. I got teary there. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, thank you. Thank you for, you know, helping us kind of navigate some of this tumultuous cultural waters too, as we think about um, our journeys uh, as we age and hopefully not just age, but become much more sage-like. We appreciate you. Yeah. Yes. Thank you. Thanks, Chris. Enjoyed talking with you today. Great to be with you both. Thank you so much. The Cartographers is hosted by Bryce Hales and Ashley Hales. It is edited by Nathan Michelle. The Cartographers is a production of Willowbray Institute. Find out more at willowbray.org. This episode is brought to you in part by the Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries podcast. Do you want to grow in your influence? Bow's episodes feature tips for leaders of any kind, from mentoring one woman to leading a ministry. Browse Bow's podcast at beyondordinarywomen.org.